Who do you work for, really? Each one of us has a calling. Have you heard this before? Your workplace is your mission field, wherever that may be. You either work for him or work against him, but you work for someone. Who do you really work for? Is it your clients, your boss, your family, yourself, or your Lord? This isn't a trick question. There is a right answer. You're either all in or all out. Are you for him? I am. In fact, I work for him. Hey, Jim, who do you work for? I work for him. I work for Jesus Christ. I want to be your Let me introduce you to the host of the I Work For Him show, Jim Brangenberg. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You've tuned into the I Work For Him show. I am your host, Jim Brangenberg. You know, I Work For Him is a mentality. It's, it's important that you recognize that it's a mentality. And it's not just a radio show. It's, it's not just a... Boy, I, you know, I'm certainly not teaching religion, that's for sure. It, it's a permanent shift in your paradigm. It describes who I am and what God's done in my life, and it describes how I operate each and every day. I hope, because you're a listener of I Work For Him, that it will soon describe who you are and what you do. You know, each day on the I Work For Him show, we try to help you recognize that your life in Jesus, it applies to everything you do. Whether you're at home, in the kitchen, in the neighborhood, washing your car, at work, or, or in traffic, your life, because it's been impacted by Jesus Christ and His saving grace, Everything about you should be changing. You know, your your existence in the workplace, it's not by chance. God's got you right where he's got you on purpose. He's placed you in the midst of a mission field, whether it's at home, in an office, a church, a warehouse, or an open field, or selling used cars. It's not by chance. You know, and in that workplace, you may be the only Jesus that your coworkers and employees may ever meet. We all have a calling. Some people get called to the foreign mission field. Some people get called to the pulpit. But the majority of us, we get called to our cubicles. And in order to recognize that that cubicle is our mission field, we need a paradigm shift. Or, as some people say, we need a paradigm shift. And on Friday afternoon, I definitely need a paradigm shift. That's for sure. Listen, as it says in Romans 12, don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. My life is being transformed every minute by Jesus Christ. Things are changing about me all the time. Some people would think it's not changing fast enough. But my question for you is on this Friday afternoon, is your life changing? Welcome to the I Work For Him Zone. You may never be the same. I want to be your hands. I want to be your feet. I'll go racing me. Go racing me. Be your hands. Be your feet. You know, each day... Each day on the I Work For Him show, we try to bring you guests or topics or just things that we're talking about that will challenge you, that will change the way you think, that will impact the way you approach life, that will help shift that paradigm for you each and every day. And today will be no different because we've never had a conversation with our guest today on the air, and we've never talked about this topic. So today I bring to you Hugh Welshel with the Institute of Faith, Work, and Economics, and we're talking about the biblical meaning of success. And if you'd like to participate in today's show, text us during the show. 
You can text us to 727-487-9863, 727-487-9863. If a question comes to mind as you and I are talking, just text us, and we will respond as fast as possible. Hugh Welshaw with the Institute of Faith, Work, and Economics. Welcome to the I Work For Him show. Jim, I'm glad to be here. Oh, I'm glad to have you here. You know, it was so fantastic to meet you a month ago. And, uh, hey, Todd, that was great background music. That's good. But we're not going to need that today. When we got to meet uh, a couple of months ago, I was. It was just, it's always so encouraging to me to meet another brother in Christ or another sister in Christ that's got the same passion for helping people uncover the secrets of the kingdom in the workplace. And, and that was what I came away with from you, that, wow, here's another guy that God's laid on his heart, and you're in another part of the country. Just so fantastic. I just am so grateful to have you on the air. Before we got, get started with the conversation, I really want you to start with, talk about how Jesus Christ has made an impact in your life today. Yeah, I tell you, Jimmy, the, um, everything I do, everything I say, is really amazingly tapped into what God's doing. And I never really realized that. And I never realized the positions he puts us in. I mean, I just finished eating lunch, uh, talked to a guy. Uh, he's a committed Christian. He is really right on the same page we are. I mean, God makes no accidental appointments. Everything is intentional, like God does in our lives. And I was just blown away. We got started talking about faith and work, and he was really excited about it. Gave me my card. He's going to go look at our website. And just, I'm blown away that everything, God is in everything we do, whether we know it or not, sometimes. Mm. Well, and it's that much should be obvious to everybody. I had somebody talk to me today in my, in my roundtable discussion group that we call Business His Way. I had somebody say, you know, Jim, I doubted you for years that God really cared about the intimate details of my life. But more and more I see it, the more and more I believe it, that God really does care about those intimate details. And I'm going, really? Have you ever looked at the schematic on the eyeball? Have you ever looked at the schematic on a leaf of a tree? I mean, the intimate details of a, of the, of a piece of DNA a piece of DNA are so incredible. I don't know how people could ever question that God cares about the small details of our lives. Yeah, it's just absolutely amazing. You think about creation, everything about creation, the more you think about it, the more it just blows you away. How it's so precise. Everything is so interdependent. Everything is woven together. It works so precisely. The stars in the sky and the earth going around the sun and it just it's just absolutely amazing. So for a basis for the conversation, let's just talk about what the Institute of Faith, Work, and Economics is all about, and really how you got there. Let, let's start with that. How did you get there? I mean, what kind of a business background do you have? Because this is a show about people who are in business each and every day, and yep. you've got a pretty yep. intense business background. Talk about your business background briefly, but then how God laid on your heart to start this Institute of Faith, Work, and Economics. Yeah, I, I was in the business world for 30 years. I've done a little bit of everything. I've been in the construction business, been in the insurance business. Last 15 years, I was kind of a turnaround guy in the computer business. And then stepped out of that in 2005 and actually helped turn around a seminary, of all things, uh, which was really kind of odd. It's not something I'd ever thought I'd ever do, but God was gracious, and we got it back on track. And then about three years ago, stepped away from that to start the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. And I, I had this really burning concern. I mean, I've been involved in the faith work movement for a number of years. I had this really concern that there was a piece missing to the puzzle. And the more I prayed about it, the more I thought about it, 
the piece, uh, you know, we call ourselves the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. A lot of people doing faith and work, but not very many people put the economics piece on there. And what we mean by that is basically this idea that faith, work, and economics intersect at a place called stewardship. And stewardship is bigger than just your job. Stewardship is really about all the work you do in your vocation, in your church, in your community, in your family, and how all that work is being given to God. We don't give God 10% of what we do. We have to give Him 100% of what we do. And that piece is sometimes missing, I think. So what we're trying to do is, is interject that back into the conversation. And how's it going? I mean, how long has, has the Institute of Faith, Work, and Economics been around now? Well, we started about three years ago, and we started with, with five people, and I hired a full-time um, um, Ph.D. in economics, full-time Ph.D. in um, theology, because I wanted some smart people to help me with this. And I also wanted to pull in the best minds to help think through some of these difficult issues, because I didn't want people to just think, well, that's just Hugh Welch saying that. I wanted the Institute to really delve deeply into some of these serious problems and think them through. Then I put a team together that would take what the academics write and translate it so the rest of us could understand it. Well, and that is so important. Now, is Anne Bradley your the person in charge of the economics? She's the one that you brought yeah, in for that. Yeah. Okay, and we've got her on. We've got her coming on next Friday, and we're going to talk about the inequality. Uh, um, Wow, I just drew a totally draw a blank. Um, income inequality. Income inequality, that's right. So, she's and that's, an expert on that. And, and, I mean, she's what, a true expert, you know, across all, all economists, much less Christian economists on that subject. Yeah, but most people think about that very differently than the, than the twist we're going to take on that next week. Oh, yeah. All right. So, oh, yeah, it'll, it'll be exciting. So let's talk about success. You know, it's one of those elusive objects because it's very hard to define. Everybody's got a little bit different perspective on what success really means. You know, it's hard to define, hard to pin down. So why did you write an article on the biblical meaning of success? Yeah, when I was in the business world, one of the things I struggled with, because sometimes I'd go to church and a pastor would preach about being content. You have to learn how to be content. And then I would go to work the next day and have to really work hard to try to win a job. And I think, am I not being content? I'm working so hard to try to win this job and, and, and further my company and grow my company and, and hire more people. And I, it just it was something that always really just kind of bothered me. As a Christian, I didn't think that I really understood the biblical meaning of success. Okay, so you wrote the paper so you could understand the biblical meaning of success. Studied it, prayed about it, and, and really the paper came out of a long struggle in my life, and it wasn't until I really understood the meaning of a, a one of the probably one of the most favorite, famous parables in the New Testament, the parable of the talents. That parable that really opened my eyes to I think what the biblical meaning of success really is. Hmm. Okay, well, you know, you say in the article that personal success and achievement lead to a sense that we ourselves are God, and that our That's security right. and value rests in our wisdom, our strength, and our performance. This seems like a pretty natural reaction to success. I mean, certainly the way we've been raised in the United States and what success means, you know, but there's a danger there. Why don't oh, you start, start explaining that? We're going to run into a break, but start right. explaining that danger. Well, I, I think that the danger is, is it becomes all about you, and, and you begin to take success and, and turn it into an idol in your life. And I see business people, Christian business people do this all the time. And it's, it's and, you know, just like everything else, when we take a good thing, and I think success is a good thing. I think God wants us to be successful. I would agree. But based on his definition, not the culture's definition. 
All right. When we come back from our break, I really want to talk about God's definition, but I also want to, I want to go into those dangers because really when we look at the biblical patriarchs, there's, we see success and we see, we see some of them suffering from the dangers of that success. Some for some of them, it goes to their head and then, and God has to redirect them a little bit. So I really want to get into that because we can learn a lot while we can learn a ton from the biblical patriarchs uh, on how they viewed success and what they looked at. And then again, from the early church. All right, we've been talking with Hugh Welsh with the Institute of Faith, Work, and Economics about the biblical meaning of success. And Hugh, right before the break, we started talking about the dangers there. Let me just restate what you said in your article. You said in your article, personal success and achievement lead to a sense that we ourselves are God, that our security and value rest in our wisdom, strength, and our performance. That seems like, you know, we've been taught that. We've been taught that in this culture that we can do anything we want to do and that success is all about us and what we contribute to it. But there is so much danger in this. Let's talk about that danger a little bit more before we start talking about the the biblical side of that. Okay. Well, the interesting thing is you've been conditioned to think about success from a worldly view, not a biblical view. And I can tell you how. You've been told, and I hate to tell you this, Jim, but you're kindergarten teacher lied to you. She told you two great lies. The first lie, she told you that you can be anything that you want to be. The second lie, which I think is even more damaging, she told you you could be the best in the world. And unfortunately, we have a whole generation of people grown up believing that that's true. And not only does it set them up for a virtual failure, because they most of them can't be the best in the world, it gives us this idea that success is defined by our culture. How much money you have, what kind of house you live in, um, is the most important thing. And that's driven by how good you are, how good you are at your job, how good you are at the other things you do. Um, and that really sets us up for failure. And as Christians, it leads us down a, a path that's just the opposite direction from what the Bible talks about in terms of the biblical meaning of success. Mm. Okay, so let's let's make this personal. How did you how did you fall into that trap of the worldview that didn't include God in the vision of success? I mean, I, I, I would bet, because you've been in business, you were in business so long, 30 years, that there was a time where you fell to that trap. You, fell, you succumbed oh, yeah, to absolutely. that danger. Talk to me about that. Yeah, I, I got to a place where I thought the amount of money that you made in your company, the amount of money you made individually, was the measure. That's the measure of success. That's what the, the culture teaches us. You know, the, the kind of car you drive kind of house you live in, you know, all of us fall into that, and I fell into that. And it really wasn't until I began to really understand this parable of the talents that I began to see that God measures success completely differently. And if he measures it differently, who should we? That is so true. You know, my own life, it was the insurance agencies that Martha and I uh, were part of. You know, I was pounding the pavement all the time, always out seeing people, always thinking, if I could just get one more sale, one more sale. We we were trying to keep up with the quote-unquote Joneses, and and it was so, it wasn't until we actually went through Crown Financial Ministries that all of a sudden I started understanding the biblical view of finance. And then it was when I read the book Halftime that I, I recognized, yep. I said, okay, all right, I've been chasing a life of success for all of these. I was only 37 at the time. I've been chasing a life of success. It is, it does, I could see the futility in it. There's nothing about it that's rewarding. I want to have a life of significance, which is really the biblical view of success is the significance. Right. So, so, right. 
So, I mean, I, I did the same thing. I mean, it was just like, but but for most people, I learned it a lot younger than most. Most people yeah. got to be 50 plus, and all of a sudden they realize, wow, I've just wasted 30 years of my life chasing, you know, marshmallow clouds or whatever you want to call it. Well, the American dream sometimes. I mean, you know, what do we tell people all the time, right? That America, anybody can grow up to be president? I hate to say it. That's just not true. You know, <laughs> you just can't be anything you want to be. The trick is you have to understand as a Christian, you can only be what God wants you to be. I just want the record to show that I did not respond to that comment because there's so many things I could say. <laughs> because I disagree with you, because I think that it's proof positive today that anybody can be president. You don't even have to have a job before you get elected. Okay. All right. So. Oh. That, but we won't go there. No, no, we're not going to go there. I'm not even going to say that. I'm not even going to say that. Not even going to say it. All right. So, okay. You referenced the parable of the talents as Jesus's way to teach Christians how to live and to work in the time between when he left the earth and when he returns. Okay. So you, you okay. reference this parable of the talents and, and, and you start to, you really uh, spread it out. You really talk to um, you know, what this is all about, that, that he left talents or an investment that needed to be made and he said i'm going to be gone a long time and when he comes back he's going to call an account so how how does the parable go in your mind and how does it deal with the biblical meaning of success yes yes first of all i think there's a little there's a little phrase in that parable that is the key to understanding the whole parable most people skip over it it says that the the master goes on a long journey gives one servant one talent gives one servant two talents and gives one servant Five talents. Now, just an aside, you know what a talent is worth in today's dollars, by any chance? It was, I, no, I don't. I know it's a lot of money. About a million dollars. It's funny because when I used to hear that, you know, I grew up in Sunday school hearing that story, and I always thought, you know, the poor guy got one talent, got one little crummy coin. What did God expect him to do with it? You know, the guy that got one talent got a million dollars and he buried it in his backyard. No wonder the master was upset with him, right? <laughs> but going, going back to the story. So, so, so what happens, he gives, he gives one, 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 two, one, five. And then at, there's this little phrase that says, each according to his own ability. Now think about that for a second. The master knows his servants, and he knows some have more potential than others. That's almost unthinkable, uh, unstable in today's political correct society. If, if that parable was done today, we'd have to say, he gave one three talents, he gave the second one three talents, he gave the... The third one, three talents. Yeah, even though they, did, they weren't equally talented. That's right. That's right. Now, here's the amazing thing. We, you know, most sermons that you hear on this, and all the sermons, I've heard a million sermons on this, they all concentrate on the guy that got one talent and messed up. We know we don't want to be that guy. But very few people focus on the other two guys. That's the guys we want to model. Here's the amazing thing about this story. The first guy took $5 million and went out and made $5 million more dollars. People don't realize this is a story about massive wealth creation. The second guy takes $2 million and goes out and makes $2 million more. Now, both of those feats would be, you know, would be good in today's economy. But in their economy, that guy that made the $10 million, that guy was like a Steve Jobs. I mean, that guy was talented, just incredibly talented, right? Now, here's the interesting thing. What is the reward given to the guy that brings back $10 million to the master? The master says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the master. Now, what's the reward given to the guy that brings back the $4 million, the two-talent guy? Exactly the same thing. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the master. Now, what's wrong with this picture, Jim? 
certainly the guy that made the $10 million, shouldn't he been rewarded much more? Well, I, you know, in a politically correct way, that's not fair. That's right. That's right. And, and, and see, but in God's economy, God realized the guy with the five talents that he gave him five talents had more ability. Who worked harder, the guy with the five talents or the guy with two talents? This is a trick question, by the way. <laughs> well, I, I don't want to fail the trick. <laughs> okay, the answer is they both work the same. Right. They doubled they their money. And, and, that's right, and that's why the reward is the same. So if you're a two-talent guy, and you go out and take the, the, the gifts that God has given you, and you work as hard as you can, you'll be rewarded just like the five-talent guy. Listen, there was a time in my life that I thought I was going to be the next Jobs or whatever, you know, Bill Gates, and just make tons of money and get, be super rich and all that kind of stuff, because that's what I thought success was. And then somewhere along my career path, I realized, you know, those are five talent guys, and Hugh is a two talent guy. And it's it's interesting because that should have been the most depressing day of my life, realizing I never was going to be, you know, the best in the world. But it was the best day of my life because I read the parable of talents and realized all I've got to do. I don't measure success against what other people are doing. I measure success against how hard I work with what God has given me. And if I'm faithful with the things that He's given me and maximize the return that I'm possible to have to the master, my reward is just as much as um, the guy who's running Chick-fil-A. Well, and I think that that's that's the practical I want to come out of this first half of the show is to really look at the practical application of the parable of the talents, because we've all been entrusted with a certain number of talents, gifts, talents and abilities is what I like to like to word it, because it's not it's it's not it's a package. God designed each one of us with a package. We bring a package to the table. What are we doing with that package? Are we shoving our heads under the sand or are we actually using that for his glory and for his honor? And and those are that's a difficult concept because again, the pulpits around America are not telling people that hey, that gift, right. talent and ability that you've been given, you use that in your mission field where you go each and every day whether you're a CPA or an attorney or a, you, you clean ditch you, you dig ditches or you clean toilets, whatever it is, that right. talent you've been given is for God's glory and it's your mission field and God's that's put you in that right. mission field. One of my one of my kind of heroes, people I really looked up to growing up, because I was in high school and college, was a basketball coach named uh, John Wooden, coached for UCLA, and during the '60s and early '70s, he won nine national championships in basketball in 11 years. He was the best in, the, in his his profession. He was the best in the world in his particular profession, and probably no one will ever do that again. A lot of people don't realize he was a very committed Christian. And he was asked one day, what is your definition of success? And he simply said, it's taking the skills that you have and going out and working as hard as you can to be as good as you can possibly be. And he went on to say there were times when his basketball team won by 20 points. He was furious with them because they did not play up to their potential. You know, we were talking right before the break about a quote that John Wooden uh, made. And John Wooden was, it was, um, okay, well, go ahead, just tell the quote. And not, not everybody knows John Wooden, tell him where he's from. Yes, John Wooden was one of the best basketball coaches probably to ever coach the game. And he was asked one time, a very committed Christian, he was asked one time, what is your definition of success? And this is what he said, and I think it's very telling. He said, success is the peace of mind 
which is a direct result from the self-satisfaction in knowing you did your best to become the best you were capable of becoming. As I said before the break, he would be upset with his basketball team sometimes, even when they won, because they didn't play up to their potential. But there were other times when they lost that he was perfectly satisfied because he knew they played as hard as they could play. See, there's nothing wrong with competing. If you're competing on a basketball court or a football field or even to win a job, there's nothing wrong with that as long as what you're doing is glorifying God, not yourself. It's not necessarily the what. It's the why that makes the difference. Mm. I love that. They're not playing. He was upset because they weren't playing up to their potential. And I really think that describes the attitude of the owner towards the servant who buried the money in the ground. They didn't play up to their potential. And and that means something different for each human being on the face of this earth. That's right. That's right. And 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 only God knows the potential each person has. God and you, although sometimes you don't even realize the potential you have until you really try hard. I think think that's that's the whole point, right? Is we go out and do the absolute best we can, and we work hard at becoming better at what God's given us to do. Yeah, I I think that there is, boy, again, it goes to some things that I've been learning in the last couple years, but to be able to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, that's how we really reach our true potential. Not our, not our, not our natural gifts, talents, and abilities, but our supernatural gifts, talents, and abilities. But, but you have to really study that because you don't hear that a lot from the pulpit. So you have to really study that and un- try, to try to understand and pray about. I mean, it's that's a big deal. Uh, we don't even have time to go into that today. Listen, I want. Well, not easy either, right? Right? It means you have to work at it. You have to work at getting better. You have to work at perfecting the gifts that God has given you. you know, the, the gifts God's given you through the Holy Spirit, it's not like a genie in a bottle that you just can do anything you want. You have to work at becoming the person God wants you to be. I, I was reading in Acts last night uh, how the disciples, and that was Paul and Barnabas, and they were they were somewhere, and I can't remember exactly where it was, but they they, they noticed a crippled guy, and, and here's what here's what Luke wrote. He wrote, and they saw that this guy had the faith to be healed. I mean, that's, that, that's a perfection of the talent of healing. They saw that the guy had the faith to be healed. They didn't just, you know, it wasn't just they were walking along and they healed a the guy. They saw that he had the faith. That's, that's taking your spiritual gifting to a whole new level. That, that just, no, that's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> All right, listen, it's time to do our book highlight segment brought to you by Karis Christian Books and Gifts. Karis Christian Books and Gifts has been part of the Largo community for over 29 years, located in the center of First Baptist Church of Indian Rocks on Ulmerton Road in Largo. Their 2,400 square foot store is open to the public seven days a week. Check them out online at shopcaris.com. That's shop, C-H-A-R-I-S.com. Be the first person to call into the studio line at 855-265-2929, 855-265-2929, and I'll send you a copy of the book that I highlight today, complimentary of Karis Christian Books and Gifts and Hugh Welshel, who wrote the book. All right, Hugh, you wrote this book, How Then Should We Work? Why did you write the book? I tell you, I struggled with the whole idea of my faith and my work. I really believe that, um, particularly 20 years ago when I really started kind of trying to work through this stuff, I really thought as a business guy I was a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. I thought the guys that were really on the cutting edge, the guys that were really on the front lines were pastors and and um, missionaries. And, you know, as a business guy, I was just kind of in the back water and, 
you know, just kind of trying to help best I could. And the more I thought about that, the more it bothered me, right? I just thought, how can it be that God doesn't care anything about what I do from, from, from you know, 60 hours a week in my vocational work? And so as I, as I began to kind of struggle through some of this, I actually went back to school and started studying some of this stuff and um, really began to discover that this idea about the importance of our work, that our work is important to God, is something the Church has taught for thousands, thousands of years. And we've just kind of forgotten it in the Church in the last hundred years. And um, it changed, it radically changed my life. And really the little book is about kind of the process I went through and, and the pieces to the puzzle that I had to figure out for all this to make sense as a business guy. All right, so the name of the book is How Then Should We Work by Hugh Welshel. And Hugh, i got to tell you, one of the funniest things, as I've prepared for the show a couple of months ago, prepared for our meeting a couple of months ago, I, I wanted to find out, okay, what kind of guy is Hugh Welshel? And I and I, I found out where you went to church, because you referenced it on your website somewhere. And then I went out and researched your church. And you go to a, I can't remember what even what kind of name, what kind of church you go to? You, is it a Presbyterian church or is it a Reformed? Yeah, it's a conservative Presbyterian Conservative Presbyterian church. So I'm, I'm reading all about it, and it said in there, hey, we're a true Reformed church. And I started reading about the Reformation, I'm going, I did not realize that Martin Luther was the whole was the guy yeah. that brought the whole idea of workplace ministry back to life in the 1500s. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I, I had in no fact, idea that's what it was about. I didn't know that's what the Reformation right. was about. I didn't know. It's one of the cornerstone pieces because before the Reformation, you had the uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church, the medieval Catholic Church, and they basically said the only spiritual job there is is the priest. Everyone else's job is secular. And, and, and um, Martin Luther said, no, that's not right. That's not what the Bible says. One of Martin Luther's most famous quotes, he said, the work of the milkmaid is just as important to God as the work of the priest. That was almost heresy back then. Well, it was heresy. Some places didn't... it's heresy today. <laughs> right. Oh, man. Okay, so listen, if you want to get a copy of the book, call into the studio line, 855-265-2929. And remember, you got to read this book. Don't wait for the movie. Yep, Robert from Largo has called in and won the book, but I know that I can convince you to send another one if somebody else calls in, 855-265-2929. I bet it could bleed two or three books out of Hugh today. So just go ahead and call into the studio line, Drive Todd Crazy, 855-265-2929. Okay, fantastic book. Got a lot of very good concepts in there. It took me a little while to read because I kept learning new stuff. I mean, it just, I mean, it was... Again, I grew up in church. I grew up, I mean, I, I had a drug problem as a kid. My parents drugged me to church three times a week as a little <laughs> Baptist kid. But I never, you know, I never understood where the Reformation, what the Reformation was all about. I knew it was, hey, the Catholic Church had gotten power. It was all about money, power, and control. But I had no idea it was about the significance of what we do in our workplace. So I want people to understand that. All right, listen. Talk to me about, you know, there's a common misperception, and this is something I had to learn about several years ago as I'm studying the scriptures, probably a little over a decade ago, that I always had this misperception that, you know, work was a result of original sin. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people think that. That's right. That's right. And you're right. You're right that work is good. So how do you come to the conclusion that work is good? 
Right. I mean, it's pretty easy. All you got to do is read the Bible, right? Uh, <laughs> you go back to the beginning, the first couple of chapters of Genesis, you see that God created Adam and put him in the garden to work it and to take care of it. That happens before the fall. The interesting thing, the connection will work, and this is how people get mixed up. If you read in Genesis 3 about the fall, it says that the, our work will be hard because of sin. Because of sin and because of the fall, our work is hard. Thorns grow up in our garden, and, and we have to, you know, make our living with the sweat of our brow. Work became hard because of the curse of sin. Now, here's the interesting thing. After this, after this chapter of God's redemptive plan is over, and we all live in the new heaven and the new earth, and in, in, um, in our new bodies, and we're with Jesus, um, it will be a physical place. There will be work there. Someone asked me that day, how can you say that? You know, I said, well, look at the scripture. There's one uh, passage in the Old Testament talks about taking at the talking about when we go to this new place, that we will pound our swords into plowshares, and we'll turn our spears into pruning hooks. And people say, well, there you go. In the new heaven and new earth, there won't be any war. But it also means that those are implements of work. So, and the work will be so good, you will not believe it. <laughs> and that is just so true. Proverbs sixteen twenty four: Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Do you value every member of your business team? The president or general manager may be the leader and the most visible member of the team, but every employee has an important role to play, and every individual is worthy of being valued. Take a few minutes to evaluate each member of your team. Write down one or more of their primary strengths and at least one area in which you are grateful for their contribution. Make a point of telling each person what you appreciate about them and how their efforts enhance the success of the business and your department. Genuine praise brings encouragement to the soul. If you develop a habit of noticing what your employees do well and take time to verbalize your appreciation of their efforts, staff morale will improve and your business team will be strengthened. Proverbs 16:24. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. We, we just got done talking about the fact that, you know, I grew up thinking that because my parents were always complaining about it, that, that work was a result of sin because it was so awful. And, and I learned that work was really God's idea, I think, was probably just to keep us out of trouble. But it was really just to keep our I mean, that was to bring him glory and honor. Right. And then when exactly. Jesus Jesus came to restore and to redeem those things that were lost at the fall and, right. and, and to bring the kingdom down here, and all of a sudden now our work is is part of restoring the kingdom here on earth. And that's why you know you write this was that was a big concept for me in your book, talking about you know our God's work as forming, filling, and subduing, that's still going on today. Right. That's right, that's right. If you go back and look at Genesis one twenty eight, it's literally God coming to Adam and Eve and giving them their, their job description. It says, Be fruitful and multiply, increase the number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Nancy Percy in her book Total Truth, I I, I read it years ago and there was a quote in there that just blew me away. I'll read it to you. She says about this particular verse that I just read, she says this the first phrase be fruitful and multiply means to develop the social world, build families, churches, schools, cities, governments, laws. The second phrase, subdue the earth, means to harness the natural world, plant crops, build bridges, design computers, compose music, 
This passage is sometimes called the cultural mandate because it tells us that our original purpose was to create culture, build civilizations, nothing less. I have never heard that before. Do you? No. Before I read it in your book, never. Never, ever, ever heard that before. It just blew me away. So, so we who are redeemed in Jesus Christ stand in the same place that Adam and Eve. We can hear the Word of God, we can understand it, and we've been empowered by His Holy Spirit to fulfill it. So this commandment, this cultural mandate that was given to Adam and Eve, echoes down through the centuries to us today. So, But, but take that concept and apply it to our workplaces today, because it's so hard. I mean, that's a theological, not a concept, but that's a theological, well, it's a reality, a theological reality. But how do we apply that? How do you, when you're working with with Christian business owners, small business owners, big business owners, how do you help them apply that principle, that biblical principle, to their workplace? They need to understand that they go into work, and then they create companies that bring about flourishing. Because that was what Adam was supposed to do. He was supposed to bring, he was supposed to make something out of something. God made something out of nothing. We make something out of something. They're supposed to create, they're supposed to build, they're supposed to do things with the talents and the gifts and opportunities God's given them to bring about flourishing to God's creation. And when we bring about flourishing, we give people a glimpse of the way things of what, excuse me, the way God wants things to be. I tell you, it's one of the most incredible ideas, this idea of biblical flourishing. is something that we write about a lot at the Institute. And when, when God's creation works like it's supposed to, it brings some honor and glory. So one of the things we're supposed to do is fight against the curse of the fall and do things the way God would have us do them. And when we do that, we not only bring flourishing to ourselves, but to our families, to our communities, to our cities. And that is one of the most incredible witnesses to what God wants to do in the world that you can possibly come up with. You know, what's so sad is that uh, there's a lot of people out there who do jobs that uh, they may think, think, oh, I just wish I could do something that made a bigger impact. You know, they, right. they may be making copies. They may be making coffee. They may be, like I said, cleaning toilets. They may be digging ditches. But what's so important for us to understand is it doesn't matter whether we're a radio talk show host or whether we're the CEO of the, you know, of Microsoft, that that we're supposed to be doing those things, and when we do those things, we bring glory to our Heavenly Father. That's right. Sometimes in ways we don't even understand, right? So I, I, I was at, I did a conference a couple, uh, about a year ago. The guy comes to me afterwards and says, look, he said, I want you to know, I'm 57 years old. I wash dishes for a living. He said, I thought the only thing I could do to bring glory to God was occasionally witness about my faith, you know, at somebody at work. He says, I'll be honest with you, he says, not many people come back to the bad part of the kitchen where I work. And he said, what you're saying, if there's, an, if there's value in everything I do, every dish I wash brings glory to God in ways I don't understand furthers his kingdom. I said, that's exactly right. And he said, that makes all the difference. Mm. We need to repeat that. we got to just talk a little bit slower, because what you just said is such a revolutionary idea. That the very work we do, no matter what it is, whether it's washing dishes, 
making copies, cleaning tables, flipping burgers, selling used cars, an attorney, a CEO, whatever it may be, that it's the even in the process of what we do, of how of how we do it, we bring glory to God. That's right. I tell people there's intrinsic value in the work itself. The work itself is good. God's called us to, to do good work, and the work itself is good. Now, is it a platform for sharing sharing their faith? Of course it is. But that's not all there is. Some people have this idea that faith and work, it just means that my job is a place where I can share the gospel. That's absolutely true. And I don't want to mislead anybody to think that that's not what I believe. But it's more than that. There's, there's value in the very work you do. And sometimes, particularly when we do things uh, we don't see how they connect to other things that other people are doing. And when the whole thing is put together, it brings about flourishing. So well, you're doing one little piece. Someone else is doing another little piece. When all that comes together, it helps people to flourish. Well, and it's 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 easier maybe if you put it into some... I, I have to do this practical stuff. Okay, the guy doesn't, yeah. doesn't wash the dishes the way he's supposed to do them. He does it a sloppy job. People then eat off those dishes. They could get sick. That's and right. so simple right. things of just washing the dishes right makes an impact on the server gets a better tip, the the patron gets to enjoy their right. meal better, the restaurant is successful, and the guy washing dishes gets to keep his and job. He hire more people, and, and he starts another restaurant across the town. I mean, there's this ripple, ripple effect that we don't think about. And that's why, and here's, here's another interesting, that's why as Christians we can't, do things by ourselves. We're called to live and work in community. See, you can't flourish by yourself. You can only flourish in community. You can't do stewardship by yourself. It only takes place in community. Why? Because God made us that way. Economists have something they call uh, comparative advantage. And what that basically means is God's given a certain set of skills. He's given me a certain set of skills. And when we come together, we can do more together than we can do by ourselves. Mm. That's and, why that's why the economy works. That's why we, we live in cities, we live in communities. It's because God made us that way. He did not make us to live by ourselves. Hugh, I got to stop you. I'm sorry. I know we need. We could talk a whole other hour, but we're, <laughs> we're coming to the end of another I Work For Him show, and I got a minute and a half. Listen, on Monday's show, I've got Rick Box with Integrity Resource Center. He'll be joining us as we talk about building faith and integrity at work. You're listening to the I Work For Him show with your host, Jim Brangenberg. I'm a Christ follower who owns my own business, but ultimately, I work for him.